Good morning. Good morning. My name is Keith Brault, and I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, uh, we're going to continue listening to the sermon of Hebrews. As we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, Hebrews is in itself a sermon. It's described by the author as a brief word of exhortation, and it unfolds as a sermon. And this is our third week in it, and we come to an interesting moment in this sermon, a scary moment. All those passages that we heard read this morning just now are, in a sense, scary passages. They're confrontational. God sends an angel of the Lord to Joshua, right as Joshua and the Israelites are about to conquer Jericho and begin their conquest of Canaan. And Joshua knows he's not just dealing with another guy on the street and says, are you for us or for our enemies? And the answer is interesting. No. Uh, That's unsettling. I'm not on your side, and I'm not on their side. I'm on God's side. And, and he's calling Joshua to be faithful to God. This is essentially, God is here. God is close by to you. Get close to him. And we hear that again in the gospel reading. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's speaking with the scribes and Pharisees, and he's bringing woes upon them. This is right after all of those woes. Woe to you. Woe to you for this and woe to you for that. Jesus, um, as, as Jesus is coming to Israel essentially as an inspector. And he's reading through his punch list. And, and in the Old Testament, if, uh, if, if a house is deemed unfit because the mold is so bad that it can't be recovered then it gets literally torn down stone upon stone after stone until not one stone is laid um, on, on another. And so when Jesus leaves the temple in that moment and says not one of these stones will be left upon another, it's a, it's a strong judgment. There's this confrontational aspect in the scriptures at times. And they're there to warn us. Man, they're there if we're not paying attention. They're there if we're drifting. They're there for when we start taking God for granted. They're there maybe for when we start hiding behind cliches that aren't in the Bible, like once saved, always saved. I've got Jesus folded up nice, and he's in my back pocket with my Costco card. And I can kind of just do what I want. And there are some times when God gets close to us, gets eye to eye with us and says, don't, don't drift. Don't take me for granted. Or maybe put another way, you're always either getting closer to me or you're getting farther away. That's what we heard in this text in Joshua. That's what we hear in this warning from Jesus. How many times Would I have gathered you? And that's what the Holy Spirit is still here in this world saying to you and to me and to the world every moment that that he's drawing us closer to Jesus. That's his purpose. 
Well, as we come to this section of the the sermon of Hebrews in chapters 5 and 6, beginning in chapter 5, 11, and it runs through chapter 6, verse 12, it's a scary warning. It's a scary warning. This maybe is one of the most difficult and oft argued about passages in Scripture. But I want to put your mind at ease. I think that a lot of the talk about this passage and the arguments about this passage are because it's scary, and so they rip it out of context, and they look at it, and they, people aren't necessarily talking about it for what it is and how it functions. What's just happened in this conversation is the writer of Hebrews wants us to see Jesus as the most amazing gift that God could ever give us. You have been given a great high priest appointed by God who made purification for your sins such that he was able to sit down because there's no barrier left between you and God. And from that seated position, he's constantly inviting you to come and have conversation with him, to come and receive mercy from him, to come so that he can give you grace for help in every time of need. That's what God, Yahweh, has set up by sending Jesus and by Jesus doing his job that he was sent for and finishing it. And now his task is to intercede and to invite us home and to draw us closer that each one of us might have a well-worn path to this throne of grace. The, The author or the sermon writer has just introduced that and then says, about this we have much to say. There's so much more that I'm excited to tell you about. But before that, I just want to make sure you're listening. I just want to make sure you care. I just want to make sure that you're bearing with this word of exhortation and taking it to heart. I'm not just informing you of some cool doctrinal things or telling you this thing that happened in history. This is about you. And how are you responding to it? Some of you are so dull of hearing that I don't even know if you're paying attention. And that's the basis of this digression. He's going to get back to talking about the throne of grace. He's going to get, get back to talking about this great high priest. He has much to say about it, and he's going to. But before that, he's kind of scooting a chair up so that he's nose to nose with each of us and saying, Are you listening? Do you care? Or do you think that Jesus is uh, a ticket that God sent from heaven? A ticket to heaven. Is that what Jesus is to you? Because if that's the case, then then there's not not much I can help you with. You're not going to get much out of this. So that's where we are. There's a good illustration that's in my notes. And I don't know if I have time to, well, it's maybe not a good illustration. If I say it's a good one, well, man, now the pressure's really on. At Christmas in our house, you know, we, we give presents. So we, we get up and we, have, we open stockings and then we, have a, then we have breakfast and we read the Christmas story and then we go to town on presents. And we don't do it the Anglican way. We do all the presents on one day. We were just late adopters. It's too late to change. <clears throat> and and if, if a kid gets a sweatshirt for Christmas... It's pretty self-explanatory, right? It's a sweatshirt. You put it on, 
You take it off, you throw it on your floor, you put it in a drawer, you throw it in a laundry basket. There's not special instruction that happens with a sweatshirt, and there's not much you can do to wreck it, right? If you're out in the field playing soccer and you start to get hot and you take off your sweatshirt and drape it over the goal or you throw it on the back of the goal and then you keep playing soccer and then you get distracted because some friends come over and you leave it there for 10 days and it gets rained on and maybe a feral cat comes and pees on it and then it gets rained on some more and muddy and then 10 days later you're like where's that switch oh yeah I think I've been driving past it I think it's on the back of the soccer goal and you go out and get it and you throw it in the wash machine and you throw it in the dryer and it's good as new, right? There's not much you can do to hurt a sweatshirt. There's no like digression needed if you're giving someone a sweatshirt. But if you're giving someone a dog, like we gave our kids, our five kids, a dog one year, first family dog, and the kids really wanted a dog. And so we gave them this dog, but we had to have a moment like this. Okay, kids, sit down, listen. You have to feed this dog. And you have to walk this dog. And if it's raining and the dog needs to be walked, one of you is walking this dog. And you have to play with this dog and talk to this dog and pet this dog. But boys, you can't be rough with the dog when you're playing with the dog because you could easily make this a mean, biting dog, right? This dog is not a prop for our pranks. This... This dog represents, a, you know, an emotional entity that we need to nourish and nurture. And if you do this, the dog will be your best friend. It'll be the most amazing gift that you've ever been given. And 40 years from now, when you're at a party or you're new at a job and people are doing icebreakers and what's the best Christmas present that you ever got, you're going to say it was this dog if you take care of it. But if you don't, it might die or it might run away. Or it might become mean and bite people and we'll have to get rid of it. So we had to have this digression. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. And we do well to pay attention to that. He's not just wasting time. We must continually nurture this relationship with Jesus. Jesus is nearby, and he's calling us ever closer. That could be the point of Hebrews. Jesus is nearby, and he's drawing us ever closer. And the author here is concerned, and this applies to a lot of us. Kids who've grown up in the church, certainly this applies to you, because you know everything. You've been here since you were in diapers, and you know it all. And for those of us who've been around for a long time, we know it all. But the author here is saying, but are you getting closer? Are you always getting closer? Are you still getting closer? And if you're not, you might be getting farther away. And there is a cliff. And I need to tell you about this cliff. And then I'm going to describe this cliff. And hopefully me describing it, just like in Joshua and Matthew and here, God uses that language to motivate us to get up and come closer where he wants us. So that's what's happening here. And first let's look at this warning in its, in its own right. Um, that there is 
a neglect of Jesus. There's a presumption upon Jesus and a neglect of Jesus that's possible that will be so bad that it will lead us to fall away from salvation. That's the cliff. It's, it's, there's no question about it. Listen, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. It's impossible. Just like in the next chapter, it's impossible for God to lie. It's not impossible like it's kind of tricky. It's impossible. He describes these people as ones who've been watered and enjoyed the, 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 the rain regularly and the sunshine. And you've been here on God's planet and in the, in the, in the way of Christian teaching and fellowship and the Holy Spirit and the word of God. And have soaked it all up, but you've borne thorns and thistles. You haven't borne a crop that's useful. And he's very clear. You're near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. So why is he saying this? I think he's saying this as a digression. As he's described this throne of grace from which Jesus is calling you to continually come and get closer to him and have freer and freer conversation with him and a closer and closer attachment to him. For those of us who've drifted or pulled the oars in or thought I'm close enough, I'm good, I don't need to really maintain this relationship, I don't have to keep feeding the dog. I fed it, I fed it like solidly for four months. It's good, right? It's, no, this is an ongoing relationship. And it's either growing closer or it's growing farther away. He's here raising his voice and warning us. There's a kind of falling away that we see with Peter in the New Testament when he denies Jesus, he betrays Jesus. And there's a different kind of falling away when Judas does the same thing. It's not really in what they do against Jesus. Judas was more like premeditated, right? So you could argue that maybe it was somewhat worse. But if you think about it, both people knew Jesus well. Both people were part of the, um, the 12 and, and followed Jesus around and saw all the miracles and, and heard all the, the sermons and were eyewitnesses to so many things. They were all on the boat when the storm got calmed. They were on the other side when those demons got thrown into some pigs. I mean, they saw Jesus forgive somebody's sins for his faith when he got lowered through a roof. All kinds of things. And then they both at some point said, no, no, I don't, I don't have anything to do with Jesus. They fell away. The difference is, if, you've, if, if you're in the sound of, of this sermon, if you're under the, the sound of this sermon and you hear this warning, as Peter did and as Judas did, the difference is, where did they go? See, Peter returned to Jesus. Peter went to the throne of grace, and he found mercy and grace for help. Judas, he fell away in such a way that he thought, I'm not ever going back. And now that I'm caught, now that my conscience is broken, now that I feel crushed by my sin, I'm not going back. 
I'm not going back to Jesus. I'm going to work out my own deal. I'm going to take the money, and I'm going to go to the temple, the place where people get reconciled to God. And I'm going to bring this money to the temple, and I'm going to just chuck it in there. I'm going to chuck this money back in there, kind of return it to God, and then I'm going to go on my way. And we know the end with Judas was bad. And we know that the end with Peter was good. We see in one of the Gospels where Jesus, his, some of his first words are, go tell the disciples and Peter that I'm alive. Go tell the disciples and Peter. Yesterday in the psalm reading for um, morning prayer, there's this refrain of his mercy endures forever. There's a throne of grace that is always open to you, and it's always open to me. And it was open to Peter, and it was open to Judas. And it's always there saying, wherever you've fallen, whatever you've done, come back. You can always be restored. That's not what the author here is worried about. He's saying, be careful if you're really taking this relationship for granted. If you're neglecting this great salvation, be careful because you could drift so far that you can't find your way back. It's a real warning. So the question I think for us is, if this is true, if this warning is here and it exists, the first question I think for us to be faithful with the scriptures is why is it here? And it's here to warn us and it's here to wake us up and it's here so that we'll pay attention to the rest of the sermon of Hebrews. But it's also here to point us positively to answer this question, how do we do this? How do I cultivate this relationship with Jesus so that I stay far away from that cliff? He describes in this warning the difference between immaturity and maturity as ones who've had their conscience trained by constant practice to discern the difference between good and evil. That's a mature person. An immature person has not had their conscience trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. What's that? Like, what's the difference there? The difference there is conversation. How do you have your conscience trained by constant practice? By having conversation. This sounds simple, and I think it is simple. If, in fact, there is a throne of grace, and if, in fact, Jesus is sitting on it, and if, in fact, Jesus is looking to you all the time and saying, will you come and receive mercy from me? And receive grace for help in every time of need? Will you do that? Will you initiate that? Then in coming to him and praying, in coming to him and asking for help, what are we doing? We're having our conscience trained by constant practice. It's hard to fake that. It's hard to fake a conversation where you're going to God and you're opening your mouth and you're specifically asking for mercy for things. It's hard to fake that conversation. It's hard to fake a conversation where you're going to Jesus and you're opening your mouth and you're saying, I need help. Jesus, I need help with this. I don't know what to do. I need mercy and I need grace for help. I'm out of my depth. Will you help me? 
those conversations with Jesus, your great high priest, who's sitting on the throne of grace, dispensing to you real mercy and real help, those conversations are the way that we have this training in constant practice. I have um, a piece of property in Charlottesville, and I don't know what to do with it, right? Um, because the, the person that we bought it from um, gave us a really good deal on it because the person we bought it from wants us to build a house and live on it. We've lived on this property for 11 years, 10 years, and the person really loves us and lives in Albuquerque and um, wants our family as part of this land. And there's one division right, and he carved off some land and he sold it to us. And now we're thinking we might not build on it and we might not live there. And so there's two things in my brain that come up when I'm brushing my teeth at night or when I'm trying to fall asleep or when I wake up in the morning or when I'm commuting, like those thoughts, right? Those questions that just kind of come into your head, those quandaries. And I'm thinking there's part of me that likes money. Like I like money. I would love to have this problem of having too much and having to pray and like, God, what should we do with all this extra money? <laughs> and having this piece of land represents like, Money, like it, we got it sold to us at a discount, and I think if we wanted to, we could sell it at market price, and and I could have more of that money that I like. <laughs> but the other thing is, there, there's there's another wrinkle here, right? There's a personal thing, and we've known this guy for ten years, and have interacted and done projects together to improve the place, and. And he says, I love you when we're getting off the phone. Like, um, my landlord. He's part of the family. When he's in town, he's over for dinner, etc., etc. So there's another part of me that thinks, well, there's something bigger here. There's another righteousness that's bigger. And how do I navigate this in such a way to honor him and to honor our friendship and have integrity? Do I give him first right of refusal to buy it back for a little bit more than he sold it for to cover some of the cost of my chainsaws and stuff? And, and I think that my natural way of handling a situation like this is I think about it a lot, and then I kind of decide the outcome that I want, and then I select people to ask about it who are likely to give me the answer that I, that I kind of want and so I can kind of say, well, I sought counsel. And in the presence of many counselors, you know, God is right there, man. When two or more agree, woohoo, pow, pow. So that's my MO is I'll, I'll think about it for a while. I'll talk to some people about it for a while. And then I'll do what I think, you know, is best. This is asking me to do something different. The book of Hebrews is asking me to do something different. It's inviting me into something so beautiful. If I'll just believe it, if I can see Jesus a certain way, I can draw closer to him. And instead of just worrying about it and immediately talking to friends about it, I can start praying about it. And not just like in an abstract way. I can, with my imagination, visualize Jesus sitting on a throne right in front of me that I've been invited to draw near to. And I can come and I can imagine his face and I can imagine his wounds in front of me, keeping me at perfect peace, the way that he's described in Hebrews. 
And I can draw near the way that I'm commanded to in Hebrews, saying everything and say, Jesus, I know this isn't a huge deal, but I'm thinking about it. I need help. I need help. Will you help me know what to do here? I want you say that you'll lead me in the paths of righteousness for your namesake, and I don't know what that path is. I'm afraid. I'm always afraid that I won't have enough money, and you know that about me. And here's this opportunity to have some extra, but I don't want to burn this guy. And will you help me? He hasn't written in the clouds and answered my prayer, but in having that conversation, I feel like my heart is soft and I'm ready to do either thing. And more importantly, according to this warning, I'm drawing near and cultivating that attachment to Jesus in a simple way with prayers that aren't being answered um, concretely. There's this natural relationship that's getting thicker. And there's this connection and familiarity and ease of conversation that's promised here and that's described here. And in a way, I think that that's how this warning is here to function. Does that exist? Or Keith, have you grown dull of hearing? In your um, instinct to just think about things and talk to other people about things, are you dull of hearing? Can you still hear Jesus saying, Keith, Keith, come on, pull up one of these chairs. Grab a beer. Let's talk about this. Sit down and let's have a conversation. I've got mercy for you and I've got help for you. Will you come and talk? That's what the author is going to continue to tell us about and to invite us to. And I hope that as we navigate through this warning that can be unsettling and jarring, that it functions the way that it's intended to function, which is not to scare us that we're living on a trap door of eternal damnation if we make the wrong move and fall away. It's not that. It's just warning us that we could drift from Jesus such that our religion becomes a scaffolding and we stop coming straight to the person with normal, everyday life, real things to talk about. Please stand.